0: James chapter two, James chapter two, while you're finding your spot, if you uh, need a Bible, there's some Bibles under the seats just in front of you. Um, if this is your first time, welcome. We are glad you're here. Let me just give you a couple of those announcements that uh, I skipped over as we entered into worship this morning. Uh, life groups are ready to begin and your sign-ups for life groups start today. Here's what you do. There is a bulletin board in the hallway. It's a new bulletin board, actually, and it has life group information on it. It has all of the studies that are available on it. And there are life group sign-up cards on this back table, on the counters out in the foyer as well. Uh, Three-by-five, four-by-six size cards. Grab one of those cards, and here's what we're doing. We're doing small, small groups in an attempt to help you be successful in the areas of consistency and accountability. We're going small, small groups. So no more than three families per group, okay? So if somebody doesn't show up, You'll know about it, right? All right? It can, it can be whenever during the week you want it to be. It can be wherever you want it to be. With three families, on a week-to-week basis, if you want to be in a different place, you can be in a different place. Okay? If you want to change the times because of somebody's schedule, with three couples, you can change the time. You can change the place. It's completely flexible so that we can be successful in you being consistent in your group finding some accountability and being attached to other brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? So here's what you do. You grab one of those cards. If you know what other two families you want to meet with, you put their names on it, you put your names on it. There's three family spots on each card. You put everybody's name on it, you put everybody's contact information, and you thumbtack it to the board out there. All right? If you've got two families, here's what you do. You just put your two families on there, and then you leave a blank. You thumbtack it to the board, and I or one of the other leaders will find someone to fill into your group. We'll figure out who might be a good fit for your group. If it's just an individual family, you're, not, you're, you're newer to the church, you don't know a whole lot of people yet, you don't know who you should connect to, just put your name on there, you want to participate in life groups, and thumbtack it to the board, and we will help to form that group. All right. So this is the first level of recruiting for life group teams, so to speak. All right. And so if you've got your team, post it on the board. If you're flying solo, if you're a free agent, you just put your family on the board or put your name on the board, and we'll help put you on a team. Does it make sense? I don't know that we can get it any easier, guys. right. But here's the deal. You have to be in a life group if you're going to be a viable part of the body of Christ, because I can't connect with you on a personal level from up here. I can steer the ship from up here. I can teach the word from up here. I can cast the vision from up here. But that seed of truth that we throw out from up here has to be watered and nurtured in a small environment. You have to get accountable to someone else so that you can live this thing out. All right. Does it make sense? It, it, it's essential. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. Okay? that You'll never find that in Scripture. Okay? It's the abominable snowman. It sounds great, but it does not exist. It's the Loch Ness Monster when it comes to Scripture. Sounds interesting, but it doesn't exist. God has created us to live in partnerships with other believers. That's why we're all part of the same body. All right? We all can't be the hand. We all can't be the elbow, etc etc. All right? Finally... Um, prayer. We're changing up for the fall school year. We're changing up our prayer schedule. Some of you know that we've had um, the church consistently open on Monday nights from 630 to 8 for prayer for you just to come and be prayed for, or just come down on the altar and pray yourself. Uh, We're changing that just a bit. We're going to the first Monday in every month. So tomorrow is the first Monday in the month will be our monthly prayer time. We're doing this partially in an effort to encourage more of you to show up and pray for your church and to pray for yourself at your church. There's just something about uh, while there's nothing magical about being here to pray. You can pray at home, right? There's something about making the effort and the commitment and the sacrifice to take a little bit of time out of your week on occasion to come to your church and pray for your church, your leaders your fellow believers in this place, right? Does that make sense? It's kind of like coming to the altar during worship. There's nothing magical about this altar, so to speak. Remember, I told the kids last week in church that God does not live here, okay? He does not live in the church. We, the people, are the church. He lives in us, okay? So there's nothing magical about this altar, but there's something about getting out of your seat and walking down here while everybody else might be looking at you and coming to the altar and and, and doing business with God, all right? Now, while I'm on that subject, I'm just going to go off on tangents here all day. Uh, let me encourage you to um, not assume, and, and I'm saying this to give more of you the freedom to use the altar. Right? This is why we're here. We're here to do real business with God. And I, I think that more of you might take that step out of your pew and come use the altar and just pour your heart out before God. Uh, if, you, if you didn't think that most people would be thinking that you must be confessing some, some gross sin while you're here. All right. So let's just get it all out there that if someone comes to the altar, it may just be that they're pouring their heart out to God in love and they want to they want to come down and they want to express to their God how much and how dear he is to them. OK, so let's not assume that they must be getting divorced. Let's not assume that they have an eating disorder or whatever the case may be. OK, let's assume let's assume that they they love their God to the extent that they just can't sit still and they got They got to go down there and they got to pour it out. OK, amen. Amen. And so I hope that that attitude, that we can can build that attitude into the DNA of our church here in these early years so that when people do come, that people would use this altar more and more and more. That it is a place of abandonment. It is a place of us giving everything we can to our God. Amen? Amen. All right. So Monday nights, the first Monday night of every month, uh, if you feel so led. Same time between 630 and 8, same rules apply. It'll be open. You can come pray at the altar. You can sit in the chair and pray by yourself. You can walk around the building. You can prayer walk the facility. Whatever you want to do to pray, if you want someone to pray with you, someone will be here. There will also be a short corporate time of prayer for those who attend to pray for our church, to pray for our leadership, and to pray for our community and all that God has planned for us in these next six months because I have a feeling that, that he is going to do extraordinary things, and you've been hearing that a lot from me. Well... James 2, that's why we're here, right? Let's get in the Word. Last we looked into James, we went through 14 through 26, and I gave you really a, uh, a heart message. You know i got different kinds of messages, right? i got heart messages, I've got teaching messages, I've got preaching messages, I've got, uh, I've got messages that, uh, that, that cause me just to want to sit down on the steps, I've got some messages that cause me to want to march around up here and throw things, uh, I've got some message where I just end up sitting and just teaching or sharing my heart. The last time we looked at James 2:14 14 through 26, uh, we had just come off Kimberly's grandmother's funeral. And remember what I said? I couldn't get my heart and mind off of that first phrase, what use is it, my brethren? And I talked about Kimberly's grandmother, and I put her picture up there, and everybody said, oh. and, and I talked to you about how sitting at her funeral, it was just so obvious that her faith was of great use to her. It was effectual. It did something in her life. It made a difference. It wasn't just a face she had on the side on Sundays. And so I spoke to you of my, from my heart. I didn't let us get bogged down in the theology of this. It is a very uh, it is a very um, thick and deep section of Scripture, and so we could have easily gotten bogged down in the theology of it and missed, really, the heart of James. And so we looked at the heart of James, and I promised you, and we will do this this morning, we're going to come back and we're going to look just for a moment at the theology of this section. A couple issues... Uh, the church has always faced and always probably will face are these. Number one, we face the, uh, the struggle to convince those who would attempt to build their faith on the facade of activity that that is not the way to go. Let me say that again. For those who attempt to build their faith upon the facade, right, the shell, what looks good on the outside, but there's nothing really inside of it. We are attempting to convince those who would build their faith upon the facade of their activity, the stuff that they do, their works, their deeds, we try and convince them that, 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 that that's not accurate theologically, that it doesn't work that way. Salvation is more than just about your activity. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. And even that faith is not of ourselves. And so we, we, kinda, we, we understand that and we know that we struggle with that issue. There's another, there's another issue that the church faces, however, We we struggle with those who attempt to build their faith not on a facade of activity, but on a facade of spirituality. Is this right? Does this happen? Right? I think it happens a lot, especially in the Southeast, especially here in the Bible Belt. The truth is neither hold water. The first is easily understood historically as fraudulent. We kind of all know this. Uh, You can't earn your way to God. Scripture makes that obvious to us who live now in the New Testament. It just We've got all the pieces in the puzzle. We've seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know that works uh, do not gain them salvation. That whole idea is is easily understood as fraudulent. Uh, But the second idea is frankly not so easily recognized because it often sounds so good, doesn't it? It comes in the form of spiritual words, but when the curtain is pulled back, we find that there's nothing back there. It's like the Wizard of Oz. It sounds great from outside, but when you pull the curtain back, it's measly. It's feeble. It's deficient. Uh, I'll just be honest with you. In, in humanity, we have plenty of folks who still think they can earn their way by their activity. They can earn their way into the favor of God. Um, we will fight that battle, and we will always fight that battle. But you know what has been more of a struggle for me, uh, I could say, in ministry, professionally? Professionally not telling a guy that his deeds are useless without faith in Christ, but telling the guy who says he has faith, that his faith cannot be in Christ because there is no obvious fruit or living out of that faith that he says that he has. That is an extremely difficult situation to be in, and it's an extremely difficult situation to diagnose. Paul dealt primarily with the first guy, the guy who tried to earn his way to faith. James, primarily, said to deal with the second guy. And let me tell you what I think. Okay? I think that we're both dealing with the same guy. And let me explain that. Uh, have you ever noticed that the guy who attempts to earn his salvation by doing the works, by, by working his way to his faith, really, really doesn't do anything worth anything. You notice that? Uh, think about it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were supposed to be experts at the law. They, pr- uh, they prided themselves on keeping the commandments. They prided themselves on keeping the law to the very T. Earning the favor of God. And Jesus comes along and he pointed out on more than one occasion that all their working never really amounted to a whole lot of anything they, they did a whole lot of stuff that didn't matter. In other words, they were great at the useless stuff. But you never see them doing the stuff that James would come along and point out as basic and obvious, right? I mean, they sure were busy doing a whole lot of stuff, but they never seemed to do the, the important stuff according to Jesus or to Paul or, or even James. Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you are like whitewashed tombs. That's a real pretty, real clean, real fancy on the outside, but dead on the inside thing. You're a shell with nothing actually alive inside, like a taxidermied animal. That's the picture. You may have the appearance of something alive, but you are actually dead on the inside. It looks real good on the outside, but the thing never moves. It's empty. They've taken the viscera out of it. They've they've gutted it. There's actually nothing behind the facade. James is going to come to the exact same conclusion that Jesus did and that Paul did, but for a different reason maybe. James's guy has the facade of faith not in deeds of his hands, but in the words of his mouth. Did you catch that? Not in the deeds of his hands is he building his faith by works, but in the words of his mouth is he almost in the same way building his faith by works. This guy can talk a good game to make it plain. He can talk a good game, but he never actually shows up on the field. And uh, if you've played sports, you know who this guy is, right? Um, You have him at all levels. The guy who talks a real big game but never actually shows up on the field. Uh, I remember when I was in Little League, uh, we had a guy. I won't say his name because now with Facebook and all that things, just get out, man. Um, His tag, though, and it rhymed with his name, his tag was the decoy. The decoy. Here's why, here's why he was the decoy. This dude had the coolest stuff on anybody on the team. Like we were five years old, right, all the way through up till we got to high school. We played together, a bunch of the same group of guys. This guy, he was always known as the decoy because he could not play a lick, but he looked pretty. He looked like the best player on the field. Like the other team would look at this guy and say, that guy must be bad because he had the wristbands, he had his tape, he had all the stuff. I mean, he was cool. Had his jersey taped up. Everything was, was tight. He looked sharp. Like you were afraid of this guy if you were standing on the other sideline. But if you were standing on our sideline, you snickered because you knew the guy wasn't going to do anything. And in fact, we called him the decoy because we'd put him out there because he looked pretty and they'd send three guys over to him. It never amounted to anything. Uh, all levels. I got into college. And I remember my first day at practice on the college football field. There was a dude out there. He was playing free safety. And I looked at this guy, and he was a big dude, he was a strong dude, and he looked bad. And I thought, that guy is going to hurt me. He's going to kill me. I know it. One day, he's going to come on a blitz right up the middle, and he's going to put his helmet right in my chin. He looked bad. At about week two, I realized that that guy was never going to see the field. Now, he talked a good game. I mean, he acted like he was going to be the man on the field, that he could take you out. But the truth is, he was never going to be there. Now I was a little bit of opposite of the spectrum. Unless you think I'm bragging, uh, I was never getting on the field either. But I wasn't pretty, and I wasn't talking a good game either. But you know who these guys are. James is having to deal with this in his in his dealings with the first century Christians. It's all this talk about a faith, but it really, when it boils down to it, on Monday, really is there is there anything hit in the field? Is there anything hit in the field? Jesus was talking to the guy with a false religion. Paul was talking to the guy with a false religion. James is still talking to a guy with a false facade of a religion. Nothing changes, just different flavors of the same ice cream. All are fooling themselves. All are issues of a lack of genuine faith relationship with Christ. Now, Before we jump back into this passage, let me just finish up my ramblings here at the beginning. Can you imagine being James, having to deal with these types of folks? Remember who James is. James is the little brother of Jesus. Watching men and women suppose they are Christians in word, but never display it in deed. Watching men and women claim the name of Jesus as followers of Christ, his big brother who also happens to be God of all the universe and savior of the world, who not only lived, but suffered horrifically and died horrifically. And now watching some some Yahoo come after him and say, yeah, I'm following that guy in word, but never actually do it. Indeed, can you imagine now how frustrating that must have been for James, who was actually following the God of the universe, the savior of the world, who died on a horrific cross for him, who oh, also just so happened to be his big brother. I mean, if I'm James, you're not putting up with that kind of thing, right? This is why James is so passionate in this letter. This is why you get more commands in this small chunk of Scripture than anywhere else. This is why, why James seems to be pleading with those who are naming the name of his Jesus. Verse 14 says this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that, can that kind of faith, what kind of faith? The faith that is a good, good talk but not good in its walk. What kind of faith is that? Can that faith save him? The implication is, no, it's not, it's not a saving faith. It's an empty, it's a facade of faith. It's the shell of a faith. It may look good coming off the tongue, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold any water. And then he goes into an example. Remember this? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, he puts this kind of faith to the test. Let's, let's put that kind of faith, the faith in word, but not in deed. Let's put it to the test. If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, just the essentials. Nothing, nothing amazing here. We're just talking about the essentials. And one of you, one of you who has the kind of faith that's more in word than it is indeed, one of you says to them, go in peace. Right? Remember what I said about this? This is a typical Hebrew blessing. They've got all the words right, of being God's chosen people. They've got all the, the words. They've got the facade. Go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. And they may even wave their hand around on them. I don't know. And yet, James says, you do not give them what is necessary for their body, the very thing that they were, they were in need of. What use is... Is that And there's a twofold meaning to, to that last phrase. What use of that? What use is that to them, right? Is it doing them any good? Are they, are they fed? No. Are they clothed? No. It's of no use to them. But it's a twofold meaning here. What use is that? Is also a reference back to the faith. What use is that to your faith? It's of no effectual use at all. Even so, he says, verse 17, if it has no works, that kind of faith, it is necro, is the Greek word. We, get, we, we, we have seen this word before. If you have a necrotic limb, if you have a necrotic part of your body, what does that mean? It means it's lifeless. It is dead. Yeah? And what do you do with a limb, a body part that is lifeless and dead? What must they do with it? They've got to cut it off. Even so, faith, if it has no works, so that guy, verse 14, his faith, it is necra, It is dead being by itself, all by itself, just faith in word with no deeds attached to it. It's it's necra, It's useless out there. And in fact, it's draining and it'll kill the whole body if you let it. It'll infect the rest of the body if you let it. And so it has to be it has to be what it has to be cut off. A couple of weeks ago, Seth preached for us from John 15. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. Seth, what do we do with the branch that runs out there in the name of the vine, but is lifeless and fruitless? What do we do? We cut it off and it's to be burned. Why? Because it is, is, it's dead. There is actually, in fact, nothing there. There. That's what James equates that type of faith to. And then he goes into another question here. But some may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me, and now I want you to circle these words, show me. All right? If you write in your Bible, circle those words. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. He's dealing with an issue here where it's a matter of, are you just going to talk a good game or are you going to show it? All right? And so the question is, can Faith and works be separated. Can you have one without the other and one or the other be worth anything? And the obvious implication here is, no, it can't be worth anything. Faith without the accompanying works is, in fact, it's dead. And he goes on to explain, verse 19. You believe, who's you? The guy who would say, I have faith, but has no deeds, that would actually be fruit of that faith. You would say, or you believe, he says. God is one. And you do well. And you get a little bit more than sarcasm here from James, right? Uh, this is a little, bit, a little bit more than harsh from James, all right? He, this is a jab right here. This is the jab right in the gut. Because he looks right at this guy who's running his mouth real good, and he says, listen, okay, uh, you believe that God is one, just like every other Hebrew kid does. We repeat the Shema O Israel Twice a day. I know you get that. You're orthodox in your words. That's the point. Okay? Because every Hebrew believed that. He says, so you're doing okay. But then he comes back with his jab. Look what he says. You do well. And actually, the demons also believe the exact same thing. If you go to Matthew, if you go to the Gospels, and you see, you see any, uh, any account where demons encounter Jesus, uh, they know exactly who he is. Uh, they have suspicions of exactly what he's up to. In fact, they beg for more time uh, for them to do their evil work before he does what he's going to do. And any time Jesus speaks to a demon, the demons do exactly what he says. They are always obedient. There's there's the idea here that the demons are one up on this guy in this passage in some sense. Right? You believe God is one? That's great. So do demons. Is the is the attitude here? So do the demons. And he even raises another line. He said, and and they shudder at the name of Jesus. There's a response by the demons because they actually know who he is. It is effectual. When they encounter the God of all the universe, they know what's up. The implication here is that you're talking this good game, but there's never any difference. And in fact, you might be worse off than the demons because at least they recognize and there's a response The implication here is that we're not getting a response from you. We're not getting any activity out of your encounter with God. Your faith is empty. 20, but are you willing to recognize? The word recognize, it's the idea of seeing. Again, show me, show me. It's the idea of recognizing, seeing something and understanding it. Are you able to recognize you foolish fellow? That word foolish is the word kerē. In the Greek, it is uh, it, it could be also translated barren or empty. So look at look at James's words here. They're straight and they're direct. You empty or barren fellow, who's empty and barren? The guy who has a useless faith, the guy who has a necro dead faith, is empty in himself. This is, again, it's this taxidermied picture, the viscera, the guts have been taken out. It's a facade, it's a shell, but there's actually nothing behind the curtain. You foolish fellow, that faith without works is, my translation says, useless. It's really a play on words here. That faith without works is, it could also be translated, is unemployed. That faith without works is without work. It's idle. It's it's not being put to use. And so, faith without work, it doesn't work, is essentially what he's saying. It makes no sense. It's incongruous. They can't cohabitate. It's the Loch Ness monster. It doesn't exist in a correct theology. Keep going. He's going to give us some examples now. And he's going to give us two examples. And here's why he gives us two examples because on the testimony of. Two, something will stand, right? So he's going to use a typical uh, Hebraic way of making his point here. He's going to go to two examples, right? And they're going to be powerful examples, uh, not just because he's giving multiple examples, but because he is giving diverse and various examples. And so we're going to get an example of a a Jewish man, and we're going to get the example of a Gentile woman. You can't be further apart in the Hebrew mind than that. The father of all the nation and a Gentile prostitute convert. From one extreme to the other, he's going to make his single point. Watch this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Let me just look at me for a second. Um, You can go into a whole lot of theological uh, jargoning here and bouncing back and forth and picking out of words etc and and I've read through all the commentaries and I and I've looked at everybody's arguments and a lot of people say is he contradicting Paul here etc can I just can we just forego that for a moment not because I can't walk you through it I could it would be laborious but because I think as we're walking through the whole book of James like I said last week some of this stuff as we just take it plainly as it is written it makes absolute sense to us I don't think anyone in here would jump necessarily to the conclusion after tracking through everything that James has already said that somehow we can now earn our way to being saved that that, that's an absurdity so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get bogged down in that Take it at face value. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see? Now circle that word, that phrase, you see. A couple phrases ago, a couple sentences ago, he said, show me, show me. Now he's going to show you, okay? And he's going to say twice, now you see, okay? And so what he's going to do here, I think, is he's going to let their justification through their deeds show us. He's going to let it be evidence. They are going to be justified in the eyes of man here by what they've done so that their fruit is obvious to all people. God knows whether or not they are justified in the sense where they are in Christ and they are actual true believers. But for us to understand if they are justified, like you and I have got to see something, right? I can't see into a man's heart. And so he's going to show us, you see, that faith was working with his works And as a result of the works, faith was completed or perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he quotes Genesis and he quotes um, uh, also uh, Hebrews. Uh, And scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Where was it said of that to him? It was said of that uh, that was said of Abraham when he took Isaac to the altar. And when he followed through on what God had commanded him, he was ready to do the thing. He was ready to follow through with the activity. You remember the story. God stopped him and provided a sacrifice in place of his son. But Abraham, fully believing that if he, if he sacrificed his son, that he could depend on the other promise of God that he had already been given, that he would have many descendants through this son, Abraham knew that God was going to have to raise this kid up. And so the story goes, he was following instructions. He was being faithful. In his obedience, he was justified. You understand the sense here? Keep going. You see, verse 24, that a man is justified by his works and not by faith alone or faith only. It makes sense. There was something in the activity of Abraham that showed everyone else That his faith was not fraudulent. It was not just an empty shell or a facade. There was something inside of Abraham that sparked him to obedience that indicated and justified to anyone who would look at his life that his faith is legitimate. Keep going. We get our second example. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You remember the story? Joshua, the spies go into the land. Rahab converts. She said, I've heard about everything that you guys have been doing. Uh, your God is a powerful God. The hearts of the people are melting before you. I'm on your side. Okay, I realize you're going to be taking Jericho out. I'm on your side. Your God is my God. She converts. It doesn't just stop there. though. The story doesn't end. The story goes on to tell us that she helped the spies not to be detected And it goes on further to say that when they came back to Jericho and the walls fell, which, by the way, she lived in. Okay, Uh, interesting part of the story of Rahab is that she was a harlot who lived in the encasement of the wall. There were actually like areas to live within the wall. She actually lived in that wall. You talk about faith in the God who's coming in. uh, She lived in the wall that was going to crumble. And she was to put, you remember the story? She was put a scarlet thread out her window. And then when they came, Joshua made a very important point to say to everyone in Israel, save Rahab. She would be plucked out by the grace of the God she had put her faith in. And she did that. She put the deal there. She helped the spies. Was she justified? Yes. Was she believing? Yes. How do we know? You see. Because she acted in faith. She did what they told her to do. And it was made obvious to the rest of us. He wraps it up in verse twenty six. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now on the face of it, that makes complete sense, right? And it seems to be a good way to summarize it. If you think about if you think about a body that doesn't have its spirit anymore, that body is an empty carcass of flesh, then, right? The body without the spirit is dead. We put it in a casket and we bury it. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's an empty shell. Okay? Now he takes that picture. Keep that picture fresh in your mind. He takes that picture of the outside and the inside and he equates it now to make his point. Faith without works is in the same way dead. Now if you were to circle the word body and draw it to its parallel, what would you draw a line to? Faith. Faith. Okay? Faith correlates back to the body. Just as the body without the spirit, now what would you draw a line to from spirit? You draw a line to works. Alright, now let me put this together. Um, just as the body without the spirit is dead, it's obviously useless. Faith without works, and when we think about works, we're thinking about what happens on the outside, what we're doing, right? Our activity. But if you really pay attention here to to how James wraps this whole thing up, it it really, for me, answers the whole question of is is James saying something completely different than Paul said? I don't think so. And I think he ends on a perfect teaching point here. Body, spirit. Body, spirit, the shell and the important stuff. Can we can we say in those terms the facade? And the guts to it. When this is in the body, it's complete. You take this out of it, this is worthless. We discard it. He equates that in the same way to faith in works. Now, if we we carry that comparison over, what do we do with these works? We've got to put it in the faith. That's where it is complete. That shows the right picture. Now, what struck me is that my idea of the works and the deeds is my, all my activity out here. But it seems to me that James would end this whole discussion bringing the, the emphasis on works back to the inside of the man. Because James knows, just like Paul knew, and James knows just like Jesus knew, that what happens on the outside, what happens out here is only an indication of what's on the inside. Does James contradict Paul? Does James contradict Jesus? No, not at all. It's an inside deal. And as as that genuine relational faith with Jesus Christ takes root in our hearts. Remember James 1, the seed of truth that he has implanted in us by his will. Okay, you putting all this together, I hope. That seed that is in us, it begins to grow. It sprouts. He waters it. It develops. And then we get this shoot.